This is the second week of our six-week Lent series. Sue started last week by explaining that every week this Lent we are thinking about Acts chapter 2 verses 42 to 47 and the picture that passage gives of the early church. But we must keep in mind a big proviso and that is that this passage shows what happened in those early years at Jerusalem in the white heat of the resurrection, ascension and Pentecost. Other passages of the New Testament tell us that it was not like that everywhere all the time. And if we look at the passage, it tells us little or nothing about their services and their rituals and so on. The New Testament, in fact, tells us more about why they were church, not so much exactly what they did as a result. In spite of all the vaccinations and the possible end of lockdown, we know that church may have to look and feel different from before. Yet, in every important way, it must remain the same. There's a saying that one must not throw out the baby with the bathwater. I have never had to make this choice for real, but I assume that the difference is fairly obvious, even on a bad day. But what about church things? What must we definitely keep and what might be changed? What is essential? In fact, what makes a church a church? Is it the individuals? I am fed up with lockdown and one reason is that it has been gradually cutting me off from many of the people I know. Perhaps it is revealing how much I knew about those people to start with. But a church is not the building, and instead is, and definitely must continue to be, the people. Churches quite often have a list of members. The Good Shepherd Church is Anglican and so has an electoral role, a list of adults entitled to vote at legal meetings. But for every other important purpose, we think lots of other people, both adults and children, are also members just as much. The church is made of people, but the church is more than just a list of random individuals. Is it a team? Teams are groups of people who work together to do something useful. For example, to carry a ball up and down a field, knocking people over on the way. A team usually has a variety of roles, for example, fall back, loose head, fly half which make the team strong by sharing out the jobs in a way suitable to the members involved. The same applies even if the purpose of the team is to rob a bank. There's a safe blower, a lookout, a getaway driver. The Good Shepherd has teams that, for example, maintain the buildings, organise messy church, provide music, arrange visiting and helping the housebound, and plenty more as well. And teams are good, and church is a team activity. But the church is more than just a team. Is it a fellowship? A team may be good for the job it does, but how do they get on the rest of the time? When other things need doing. A team might run a business and be very good at it, but out of work they might be at loggerheads. 
Perhaps they value each other for what they bring to the business, but otherwise detest each other. The Good Shepherd Church is not like that. We may be working together in a particular way or perhaps do different things from each other. But the rest of the time and during the week, we would still be good neighbours and inquire for each other's health and well-being and have coffee together. Now there's a memory. Some of us might know each other well and others not so well, but we would still have in common, at the very least, a shared habit of church going, a shared understanding of and commitment to the faith, and on that basis we'll get along well. Fellowship is indeed good, but church is more than fellowship. So how is a church different? If a church has members and a purpose and each member has a role and they all get on well, what more does a church have? What makes a church a church? In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is dealing with a church that had not been working well. Another time we might dwell on that aspect, but for today we want to focus on just one sentence in that letter. From chapter 12 verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. The main point here is that he takes this for granted. Members of the church are the body of Christ. Of course, this is figurative, otherwise Christians would not be able to do social distancing. But at another level, it points to a greater underlying spiritual reality. No one would say anything like this of a rugby team, a gang of robbers or any other normal type of club. In about the 3rd century, Tertullian, who died in about 240, wrote about some people saying, Look how these Christians love one another. They're quite unlike the pagans. He had put his finger on the thing that makes church the body of Christ. Perhaps he was thinking of something Jesus had said even earlier. In his Gospel, John records a long prayer of Jesus, part of which is as follows. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. As it was Jesus who asked this, presumably it has become true or is becoming true for us as it did for his other followers down the centuries. For months now I've kept coming back to this point and still suspect I've not understood everything that there is to understand. But several things seem to be relevant for now. First, this unity is an existing fact, not just a team talk. A rugby coach might implore his team to act as one man, think the same way, coordinate well, stop dropping the ball and so on. But that team talk doesn't make it so. 
the players still just have to try their best to put it into practice. With us, it is the other way round. Something has already happened to us as a result of Jesus' prayer and God's activity in response. In our Philippians passage, uh, chapter 1, verse 27, Paul writes to a church, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Our conduct flows from what God has already done, and it reveals that he has done it. Our role is just to let God work in and through our lives. Second, the unity that God gives and the love that flows from him through us cannot be faked. It is just a fact, and we must act in the way that flows naturally from that. At the end of the extract from Jesus' prayer, verse 23, that I read just now, Jesus says that a result of the unity for which he is asking will be that others will know that God the Father sent Jesus. It is tempting to try to fake that unity, hoping that then others will know. But it doesn't work because the others can easily spot a fake. It would be cart before horse. Instead, we must let God do his work of transformation inside us, bringing that unity to completion. And it is then that they will know, because they will be seeing the real thing. What will the church be like in heaven, do you think? In due course, we trust, our Heavenly Father will collect us together in heaven, and we shall be perfectly church there. Will it be the same? I hope not. There should be no need for us to reach out to drug addicts or to feed the homeless because there will be no addiction and everybody will have their home. The evangelists will preach no more. The music, activities, architecture and so on will, I assume, be all different and so much better. So what will remain and be the same? Our unity will be complete with each other and with the Father. Our love will be unpolluted. It is the beginnings of this perfect, redeemed, reconciled and remade people of God that others now see being formed in the church of today. And it is that which draws others to Christ and into the life of faith. And that is the baby that must not go out with the bathwater but which must be nurtured to maturity and beyond.